You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Help me tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Living Water, The Living Water. As we come to chapter 4 of John's Gospel, we arrive at one of the most well-known stories of Jesus' ministry, and that is, of course, this encounter with the Samaritan woman. This passage is so rich with truths that we won't be able to extract them all this week or even next week when we come back to it. But what we will do instead is focus in on John's purpose for recalling the story and what he's trying to communicate, which is that it is only through Jesus can we receive the living waters of God that wells up to eternal life. Remember, John is still making his case as to why Jesus is the Messiah. These were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, is his thesis. And so he recalls a time when Jesus offers living water, of the living water of God to the Samaritan. New. This wasn't a clever ruse or analogy or metaphor that Jesus came up with in order to have a relatable conversation with this woman at the well. And, but of course, that was the result of it. But by using this term of living water, Jesus is actually declaring that he is the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8 to 9 says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. The entire chapter of Ezekiel chapter 47 talks about this living water that will flow from the temple, from the presence of God and cover the entire earth and wherever the water spreads to, blessing and life will flourish. There are many more passages like this throughout the Old Testament uh, referencing a promise of living water or the fountain of God uh, that creates life or restores life or restores the weary soul. So again, by offering living water to the Samaritan woman, Jesus is explicitly declaring that he is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He is the one who has access to this living water of God that will restore the land, that will, that will refresh the soul, that will cleanse the sinner. This, this, this living water that will bring new life to those who are spiritually parched. And that's what John wants to communicate here. The apostle is pointing to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is ushering in the living waters of God. Now what's interesting about a passage is that Jesus not only makes these claims, but he proves those claims by this interaction with this Samaritan woman. It's through her story that we get a true sense of why this living water that Christ offers is necessary, is desirable. The Samaritan woman's story sets the stage for this great demonstration of God's heart to the sinner. And by recalling this story, John is explicitly saying, if Christ is willing and able to give this sinner, this Samaritan woman, this living water, he is able to do the same to you. He is able to give the same waters to you. 
And my hope, church, is that as we unpack her story, the Samaritan woman, and who Christ was in the midst of her story, that you would be reminded as well of who Christ is in your story, of how he can be the way to the living waters of God whenever we find ourselves wearied from the trials of this world or whenever we find ourselves exhausted from our bouts with sin and temptation. My hope is that we would be reminded that Jesus has the waters of life that refreshes us for the battle, that cleanses us of our sins, and that he is more than willing and able to give us these waters of life. When we find areas of our lives that feel barren and empty and lifeless, when we find ourselves feeling rejected and alone, forgotten by others, this story is a reminder that Jesus is our access to the springs of life that never runs dry and that he is more than ready to dispense when we come to him. See, this living water is a metaphor for salvation, of course. It's cleansing of sin, it's forgiveness of debt, it's redemption from the punishment of sin, it's reconciliation with a holy God and a promise of eternal life. But it's also refreshment from the trials of this world. It's satisfaction for the weary soul. Beloved, my hope is that if, if at any point you find yourself relating to the Samaritan woman's story this evening, that you would be refreshed by the Savior himself who offers this living water as a free gift out of grace, out of love, for those who would come to him and those who would believe and seek refuge in him. Church, I pray that you would not pass up this opportunity to take the plunge into the living waters of God this evening. So with that said, let's dive into our passage. Everyone say, dive. Our story picks up shortly after the events of chapter 3. If you recall, Jesus and his disciples, along with John the Baptist and his disciples, were, were baptizing people near Anon, near Salem, baptizing people. And so actually we have a map of this. I came prepared this evening. We put up that map. This is a, a map of uh, uh, ancient Israel. I just wanted to give you sort of a sense of where, uh, where, where all this is taking place. Hopefully you can see it. You might not be able to see it in the back there. But if you can see right in the middle there, right where it says Samaria, right to the right of where it says Samaria, it says Salem and Anah. This is the, where the scene in chapter 3 was taking place. John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples were baptizing people there. Now, if you remember some concerns that there, there were some concerns that arose among the disciples of John concerning Jesus and how more people were following him. And so they go to John the Baptist and they, and they bring up these concerns. John is like, that's good. He's the Messiah. I told you, I'm not the Christ, right? It's a great thing that people are going to him. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best friend or the best man. He's the one who, who all the attention needs to go to. You know, he must increase and I must decrease. Now from there, our passage picks up. It says in verse 1 of, our, of chapter 4, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, we talked about this in the previous sermon, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So at some point on that map, he, they traveled southwards on the river Jordan and entered into the land of Judea so that now hearing the Pharisees are after him, he's going to go up north to where Galilee is. Keep this in mind. Uh, we'll see a lot of this sort of instance where, where Jesus has to escape the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of John. And this wasn't because he was afraid of the Pharisees, certainly not. There's instances where Jesus publicly opposes the Pharisees. 
But this was to ensure that his ministry would not go uh, would not go hindered, would not be deterred. Jesus had prophecies to fill. He had people to minister to, the gospel to establish. It wasn't his time to be brought in for trial yet. And as we'll see very shortly, every minute and every moment of Jesus's three-year ministry on this earth had a purpose, was intentional. He wasn't going to let some Pharisees deter him from doing what he came to do, what he needed to do. So he takes his disciples and he heads up north to Galilee from Judea, and it says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Jacob. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Did anyone notice something strange here just now? Something, something's a little off here. Go back to verse 4. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is an interesting statement from John. And anyone else curious as to why John said this? Why I'm making such a big deal of this? Why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? I mean, at first glance, it's possible that John is just stating a matter of fact. And if we go back to that map, please, right? Judea's at the south. Galilee's at the top where he's trying to go. And if you read later on in the chapter, he's actually trying to go over to Nazareth. And then he's going to visit Cana later. And Samaria is right in the middle of Judea and Galilee. So it wouldn't make sense if John was simply stating a matter of fact that he had to cross through Samaria to get to Galilee. We, again, but remember, if you will, the cultural context of this story. And I'm sure you've heard this before, that the Jews hated the Samaritans with a passion. They saw them as half-breeds, Jews who, who, who followed after pagan cultures and intermarried with pagan people. They were considered unclean. They were probably looked at as, at as one of the reasons why Israel had been occupied by the Roman Empire and other nations. God said, don't marry the people of the land. Guess what? The Samaritans did. And look, now they're oppressed by this occupying nation. So here was the Samaritans who, who, who were very much hated by the Jews. So much so that that they did not use or touch anything that the Samaritans touched or used as well. If actually, go to verse 9 real quick. If you see in the parenthesis statement there from John, it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The word there for dealings in the Greek literally translates to to use not anything together with. Sugrakomai. John is literally saying Jews used nothing together with Samaritans. And they didn't. They didn't use the same utensils. They didn't use the same cup. They didn't use the same living spaces. And in fact, they, even, they didn't even use the same roads. This is why verse 4 is really out of place. Because any Jew reading this gospel at John's day would have said, he had to pass through Samaria? What do you mean Jesus had to pass through Samaria? The Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they actually made a road that went around the entire peninsula of Samaria, if you go back to the map, and goes all around, it goes into Perea and all the way around Samaria and goes up to Galilee. And, and in fact, that road starts at the Jordan River where Jesus and his disciples from. So if you were thinking, if you were Jesus and his disciples, and you were thinking, well, I, we need to go over to, to we need to go over to Galilee because the Pharisees are coming. The most direct route is that road that goes around from the Jordan River all the way up through Perea 
through the Decapolis and all the way up to Galilee because, again, no Jew would willfully go through Samaria. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, having been baptizing people again, he could have just went straight up through that road. So why does John make this statement? Why did John, or why did John have to say that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Well, because, church, this tells us a, a, us a great deal about who Jesus is and his heart for the sinner. See, Jesus had to go through Samaria, but not because it was the only way to Galilee. There was multiple ways. No, Jesus had to go through Samaria because I believe he had a divine appointment to make. He had to be in Samaria in a town called Sychar by the well of Jacob, sitting beside it at the sixth hour, noontime of the day. Why? Because verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Do you think it was a coincidence that Jesus was at that well in the middle of Samaria, in the middle of the day? Do you think it was a coincidence that the Samaritan woman came at the exact hour, the exact time that Jesus was sitting alone at the well? Coincidence? I think not. Not if you believe in a sovereign God who declares an end from the beginning, who, who from ancient times things not yet done. Coincidence? I think not. Not if you just read John chapter 3 and how salvation is God's work alone, the monergistic work of God, and how the wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The reason why Jesus had to go through Samaria, why he had to make the detour through a place where no Jew would willfully go or even consider, is because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. It's similar to how the Holy Spirit led the Philip the evangelist to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 so that he could proclaim the gospel. I believe the encounter that the Samaritan had with the Savior at this well was no coincidence. It was intentional. It was purposeful. This was no random encounter, especially if, not, especially if you believe that God knows who he will save and purposely and intentionally pursues them with his grace. That's what irresistible, effectual grace is. God pursuing the sinner with his grace to bring about his intended purpose of salvation. Jesus went out of his way just to meet with the Samaritan woman, and not just any Samaritan woman, specifically this woman who was retrieving water at noon, at the middle of the day where the sun was the hottest. No one did that, by the way. The common hours to go to the well to fetch water was either at dawn or at dusk when the sun was low, when the day was cooler. Yet this woman alone in the heat of the noonday sun goes to fetch water. Why? Well, from what we learn about her later, she has reasons to avoid the crowds, reason to avoid the other women. Five husbands, and the one that she's living with now is not her husband. That's a scandal. That's, that's, that's the town tabloids. That's what everyone would be tweeting if there was Twitter back in those days. She would have been known all throughout the town of Sikar as that woman. Can I imagine anyone would get tired of all the stares and all the whispers and the gossip whenever they would come into the crowd? So we can deduce why she was willing to go to the well at the noonday sun, at the hottest point of the day, is to avoid the crowds. Listen, that's who Jesus pursued. That's who Jesus came to meet. The outcast, the sinner, the one wearied by the troubles of life. That's who Christ was after. And that's the 
first truth that we get from this, this story that Jesus pursues the weary. Jesus pursues the weary. In the Gospel of Mark, some Pharisees questioned Jesus as to why he was hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, basically sinners. And Jesus replied to them, Mark chapter 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is, this is the heart of Christ as he meets the Samaritan woman. Why he offers her the living waters of God. Jesus pursues the weary. Those who are wearied by the sinful choices of their lives or, or those who are burdened by the sinful choices of others. Christ came to her. Christ pursued her. And tonight, maybe that's you. Maybe you're dealing with so much shame and regret for the choices that you've made in your past for the lifestyle you're currently living. Maybe you, you are wearied in your soul over the cycle of sin confess, sin confess, sin confess, and you find yourself repeating day and night, day and night. Maybe you're feeling lost and dried up from the consequences of sin, from the hardships of life, from the trials of life, from the heartbreaks of life, and you feel abandoned and alone. Well, beloved, understand and know that there is a reason why you are here tonight. There is a reason why, of all the places you could be here, be at a Saturday evening, you are sitting in that chair and hearing the story about the Samaritan woman. There is a reason why God brought you here. A reason why you came with all your baggage and all your hurts and all your sin. Because Jesus pursues the weary. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one lost sheep. In the same chapter, Jesus tells the story of a woman who loses a coin and turns the entire house upside down just to find this one coin. And in that same chapter, Jesus recalls the father of a prodigal son who was willing to take on shame and disgrace just to receive that one son back. That is God's heart for the sinner. And that's God's heart for you. If you are feeling wearied by sin, parched by the barrenness of life, God is pursuing you. He's after your heart. Hear the beautiful words of the psalmist, Psalm 139, verse 7 to 9. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. This is a God who pursues, who is relentless, a Savior who will do whatever it takes to save his bride. Why? Well, because as we read in chapter 3, for God so loved the world. Out of love. Love is what quickens the feet of the Savior in his pursuit of us. Listen, if you can relate to the Samaritan woman, that's why you're here tonight. God and his love and, and knowing the burdens that you are carrying and the sin that is weighing heavily on you brought you here in this hour so that you would meet with him. And I get it. It's hard. Sometimes after we've sinned, it's so hard to come to God. Because, God, I failed again. I messed up again. It's the same temptation I keep failing to. And there's a feeling of unworthiness and a feeling of shame, of, a feeling of, of, I failed again. It's so hard to get back up. 
sometimes we think that there's no way that God can redeem us. But the beauty of the story is that despite having known of all the Samaritan woman had done and would ever do, Jesus still goes to her, makes the journey through Samaria just to meet with her. Listen, your sin does not surprise God. In fact, he's seen the worst, the most wretched part of you. The worst thing that you could ever do, the worst thing that you could ever think of, the worst thing that you could harbor in your heart, it doesn't surprise him. Yet the Bible still says God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the heart of God even after we've sinned, even after we've failed him. He comes to us and he says these words, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. I love this passage. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Can you imagine this? This is one of the most mind-boggling passages in Scripture. The holy God inviting the sinful man to come and make his case before him, to reason, to argue, to prove why he should be accepted into his holy presence. What case could we make? The evidence is very clear. We are sinners only deserving of God's wrath, yet in his divine forbearance, he withholds his wrath in order to pursue us so that he might save us. He demonstrates mercy and grace. And we see this in our passage. Look what happens with the Samaritan woman. Verse 7, he says, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? A lot of red flags there. She was a woman from Samaria. And again, they didn't share any utensils. And here's Jesus asking to use her cup. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is grace. This is mercy. Despite knowing her background, knowing her story, knowing the person that she is, her position in society, knowing her sin, Jesus was ready to offer her forgiveness, offer her cleansing, offer her salvation with the living water of God. If only she asked. This is the second truth that we see about Jesus in this story. Jesus pours out mercy. Jesus pours out mercy. This woman from Samaria had five husbands and is currently living with someone who isn't her husband. You have to understand that though the Jews didn't share anything with the Samaritans, they still actually believed in the same Mosaic law. The Samaritans followed the Pentateuch, the Mosaic law, so if you know your Bible, the grounds given for divorce in the law, in Moses' law, is unfaithfulness to your spouse, whether it's unfaithful in providing for their need or, in worst-case scenario, adultery. So this woman having five husbands tells us that either she was in a series of marriages where the husband was unfaithful or that she was unfaithful. Either way, the result is that she's living with someone who isn't her husband a sinful thing for those under the Mosaic law. It would have been a public account of fornication, something that would have painted her as the worst woman or the worst of sinners. 
Yet despite all that, Christ still offers her the waters of life. And she's not alone in that group. The Bible is full of stories of how God steps into the lives of the most sinful people in order to demonstrate the abundance of his mercy and grace. God takes a doubting and fearful Gideon and uses him to lead his armies. God takes a murderous, adulterous David and uses him to write the beautiful psalms of the Bible. He takes the prostitute Rahab and uses her to save some spies and adds her to the genealogy of Christ. God took Paul, the greatest persecutor of the faith, and turned him into the greatest propagator of the faith in order to demonstrate the abundance of grace and mercy in his life, through his life. Paul says to Timothy about this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief of sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, someone here needs to hear this. There is nothing that you can do, no sin that you can commit, no failure you can stumble in, no hole that you can dig that can outgrace, outmercy, outlove God. God's patience is perfect. God's grace is perfect. God's mercy is perfect. God's love is perfect. That's what makes him a holy God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, how the law of God was given so that the severity or the weight of sin would be enhanced, increased to the max, all the more. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin reigned, grace conquered. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, that's grace, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And who it is that who it is is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Though the Samaritan woman did not deserve it, Jesus was ready to pour out refreshment, cleansing, forgiveness, salvation. If only she asked. Brothers and sisters, this is God's heart for us this evening as well. Every time we fail, every time we stumble. God doesn't stop loving us. God is ready to pour out his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness the moment we ask for it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't believe the lie that you've failed so much or that you are so far gone that God can't restore you, that God can't forgive you. It's a lie. God can and is willing to restore you. And this is the last truth that we see from this story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus promises recovery. Jesus promises recovery, and he's faithful to keep it. Our passage continues, verse 11. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. A little bit of attitude there. That's okay. Very defensive, and sometimes it even sounds callous, but I imagine having faced so much criticism and ridicule from others would have done this to a person. But Jesus sets that aside. He continues in his pursuit. Verse 13 says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become a, to him a spring, of water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus promises her recovery, healing, satisfaction, eternal life. And this is what this woman was looking for. What any one of us who are wearied by the trials of this world, by the, by the sins of our lives, is looking for. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's a physical need that she is stating here, but also a spiritual one that is understated. She's saying, give me this water so I won't physically thirst again. But she's also saying, give me this water so I don't ever have to come here again. This place that reminds me of my sin. This place that reminds me of my shame. This place of my rejection. And this was the epiphany that really hit me and drove the sermon home for me as I was preparing for this word. This woman was moving from relationship to relationship, from one husband to the next, in pursuit of something to satisfy her soul. And all of it came up empty and dry and left her all the more weary and parched in her sin. Help but think that some of us here tonight are feeling the same. Some of us are living lifestyles, jumping from one relationship to the next, one substance to the next, one addiction to the next, one ambition to the next, one paycheck to the next, hoping to satisfy a deep need, longing that cannot be satisfied with anything in this world. Like this woman, we keep coming back to the same well, coming back to the same situations, coming back to the same mentality, the same habits, to the same sins, thinking that something would change, trying to be refreshed, like drinking ocean water, but just ending up more thirsty than ever. C.S. Lewis wrote, I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world made for something more, made for someone more, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the needs of your soul, the only one who can truly refresh weariness of sin, the only one who can truly offer freedom from the guilt of sin and the shame of sin and the burden and the heartbreak of sin. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus promises recovery, restoration, relief, healing, and he's faithful to keep his word. If it wasn't so, Jesus would not have said it. Only he can truly give rest to our souls and freedom from sin and satisfaction to our deepest longings. 
So stop turning to other wells to drink from. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. Now, one of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning this living water, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is everybody's crime. This is everybody's sin. Us leaving the source of true living water, what can truly satisfy our souls in order to create for ourselves our own wells, seeking to satisfy ourselves. Come to Jesus, the lover of your soul, the one who is pursuing you, the one who is ready to pour out mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, the one who can truly bring recovery and refreshment from sin. If you're wondering throughout this, oh, how do I do that? How do I do that? It's very simple. Jesus said it in our passage. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. Verse 10, again, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. All you have to do is ask. Asking demonstrates humility, recognizing that you don't deserve it. Recognizing that it's only from him that you can receive this living water. Asking also demonstrates repentance. Recognizing that the way that you have been going, the way that you've been trying to satisfy your soul is not working, and the only way to actually do it is through Christ. Asking also demonstrates faith. That Jesus is truly the only one that can satisfy Again, this is the free gift of God. This is the free gift that Christ offers to every single one of us. Whether a long-time believer or an unbeliever, if you are here tonight and as you've been hearing this word, you can, you've been relating to the story of the Samaritan woman, the invitation is plain and simple. Just ask. Recognizing your need for Christ. Recognizing your need to be refreshed, to be free from sin, to be forgiven of sin, all you have to do is ask. It is the free gift of God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All we have to do is ask. So church, as we come to an end this evening, let me ask you, where do you find your satisfaction? What is it that you turn to when your spirits are low, when you're tired and weary from the burdens of this life, in your struggle with sin? Who is it that you turn to? Who is it that you're trying to satisfy your, your deepest longings in? Because if it's anything else in this world apart from Christ, let me tell you, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never find freedom or peace or joy. It's only in Christ. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the, the last chapter of the Bible. 
has the same invitation. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's what's offered to us this evening. And if you have yet to ask Jesus for this water of life, for forgiveness, I pray that you would do so tonight. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, you know where we fall short. You know our sins, that we hide our failures, oh God, that shame us. You know where we have gone to and turned to to find satisfaction for our souls over and over again, despite knowing that we will never be filled by it, despite knowing that we'll never be satisfied in it. And I pray right now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring such a conviction in our hearts to stop pursuing these cisterns, these wells that don't satisfy stop going to the sources that just leave us more dry. I pray, oh Lord, that you'd bring such conviction in us so that the only place that we would desire satisfaction and joy and love is in you, Lord Jesus. Turn our hearts towards you once again, oh Lord. You know how prone we are to wander. You know how impatient we are when, when, when we can't wait for you and we desire to turn to other things. Oh God, I pray that you would root us at your well, at your spring. That we might receive from you mercy and grace and cleansing and forgiveness once again. God, of the joy of our salvation. I pray, oh God, for those who do not know you, those who have not asked for the waters of life from you, those who have not asked for forgiveness from you, a reconciled relationship. I pray that you would stir their hearts this evening. Let them know that this is the reason why they're here tonight. Let them know, oh God, that this is the reason why you have called them here and you are pursuing them with your love and your grace and your mercy that they might draw near and drink from the well of eternal life. The Holy Spirit, have your way amongst your people this evening. Refresh us, oh God. In Jesus, in my name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.